0: This is In Conversation from Apple News. I'm Shamita Basu. When Amber Van Mosner was growing up, her parents used to call her their miracle baby. I was born quite late into
1: my parents' marriage and I had been told my whole life that they were told by doctors that they couldn't conceive and that they had just magically had a healthy baby
0: and that was me. She never questioned that story until she was in her late 20s when she got the results back from a 23andMe genetic test.
1: So the first thing that popped up was that my Ethnicity was predominantly Ashkenazi Jewish, and that was a huge
0: surprise. Even after doing some research, she couldn't find anyone on either side of her family who was Jewish. And I immediately called my parents, and
1: they just kind of swept it under the rug. My dad was like, oh, I guess, like, I must be Jewish
0: then. But then Amber received a message through 23andMe from a woman who said, Hey, we're a match. I'm your half-sister. I was conceived via a sperm donor. Were you donor conceived too? My mind
1: just started reeling. I, I remember my first reaction was I didn't even know what the term donor
0: conceived meant. This message completely changed Amber's life. She confronted her parents, and finally, the truth came out.
1: All right. Well, this has been heavy on my heart, honey. There's a good chance that girl is your uh, half sister.
0: Amber's story is just one of many you'll hear on the podcast Biohacked Family Secrets, hosted by TJ Raphael. It's about the donor conception industry, how closed and unregulated it is, and how it affects people's lives. I spoke with TJ about how little the industry has changed, even with the rise of mail-in genetic tests. But first... I asked Amber to tell us more about her story and what happened when she first got that message from a half-sister named Caitlin.
1: So I messaged her back immediately and uh, I was like, hey, like, you know, excited to connect with you, but I'm definitely not your half-sister. There must be some kind of mistake. I'm not donor conceived. But, you know, a half-sibling match from a genetic perspective could also be a first cousin potentially. Mm -hmm. So I was like, oh, maybe this woman is my cousin or maybe, you know, she, you know, I was trying to put the pieces together, but I had completely put it out of my mind that she was my half-sister because there was no way that that was real to me
0: in that moment. So did you decide to get in touch with Caitlin and get to know her better next? Or did you decide to take it to your parents? I was doing
1: both simultaneously. I immediately Uh reached out to my dad and I was like, hey, I got this message from this woman. What is this about? you know i was like you were never a sperm donor right and he was like no and i was like we're your brothers and he was like i don't think so and even then the conclusion i came to was oh well you know what my dad had an affair and this woman is the product of that affair and her mother must be ashamed and her mother told her this lie to protect her and i were like unraveling this now mm. you know and i say that not to say that that was something that i believed was within my dad's character or you know, something I thought he was capable of. But in my mind, again,
0: that was the only thing that was possible because it was not possible that my dad wasn't my dad. So you recorded the conversation that you had by phone when you finally confronted your parents and really asked them for the truth about this genetic test. And uh, I should say that they gave permission to play parts of that phone call on the podcast so we can hear this very charged exchange that you have with your parents What was that conversation like? I'm a a recovered journalist.
1: I've always had the (laughs) tape a call app on my phone for, for interviews. And, you know, at that point, I'd been going back and forth with my parents. Their answers were getting kind of vaguer and vaguer. And I knew something was up. And after talking to Caitlin so many times, I kind of felt like I knew somebody was lying. You know, somebody was lying in the equation either Caitlin had the wrong information or my parents were withholding information. And so I I decided that night I was going to call them, but then on my drive home in my car, I was like, I I literally cannot wait till I get home. Like, I need to know what's going on. Mm -hmm. And so I just turned on tape, a call, and I called my parents. Amber? Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Can you hear me?
0: Yeah.
1: Okay, what's up? What's up?
0: In this phone call... Amber's parents finally revealed what they'd been keeping from her for so long. In the 1980s, they desperately wanted to be parents, but they were having trouble conceiving, and so they decided to try using a sperm donor.
2: There was a genetic
0: thing between, uh, some sort of a chromosome thing between dad and I. When we talked with uh, um, you know,
2: a specialist, they had said that, that um, we'd be better best not to to take the chance. But you know, it didn't work a couple
1: times.
0: Eventually Amber's mom did get pregnant and they decided to move forward, assuming by some small chance, that the biological father was Amber's dad, not the donor.
2: So we just chose never to find out. Okay. Well listen, it's okay. It's
1: okay. It's okay. It's okay. Um,
2: that's why I heard, Dad, when you started, when you
0: even started to look into the genetics, it just, Dad was so worried because we so hoped, Amber, that...
1: Well, it. I was so concerned, like, well, what do you think of me? I love you. Are you kidding? Why would I think any differently?
2: I am so glad to
1: hear that it that doesn't make any difference to you.
2: It is as sure as hell you going to make no difference to me.
1: I feel terrible that I kind of forced you guys into this.
2: Oh, wow.
1: Um,
2: so we were well, afraid we were going to be, be upset that we never went and had a blood test on to
0: see whether or not we, we didn't want to know. I'm so sorry, Mom. I I know.
1: That's really crazy. I'm really sorry. Um, <laughs> I don't. It's, it's okay. I.
2: You know, the, the thing is the way Mom and Dad have always been with you, that when you get down to asking with the truth, we have to tell you the truth. Just wish you never asked it.
1: My mom told me that she just really thought she could go to her grave with this. And we're talking about, you know, it's the 1980s. DNA sequencing hasn't been completed. There's no DNA testing. And, you know, my mother's doctor literally told her to tell no one. And she, you know, just proceeded with that advice. So they really never thought this conversation would happen. I was completely blown away because, again, when you're told your father is your father your whole life, why would you believe any differently. And so I just remember just being completely in shock. And then as soon as I got off the phone, all of the emotion just like rushed out of me. And I was just crying so hard that I couldn't breathe Mm. because it was completely overwhelming. I mean, I just felt like my entire life, my entire identity as it relates
0: to my family was completely shattered. Amber's parents went through the donor conception process more than 30 years ago. Some things still look more or less the same. Today, you can go the more traditional route, basically going to a fertility clinic that coordinates with a sperm bank, also known as a cryobank, that can guide you through the process. But as Biohacked host TJ Raphael explains, there are other avenues these days.
2: You can also buy sperm online. You can go to any of the major cryobank websites, essentially shop for a donor, put in your characteristics. Do you want someone who's at least 5'10", who has green eyes, who has brown hair, who enjoys playing music? Get all of your qualifications, add to cart, and then check out with your credit card And you could inseminate yourself at home. Also, Mm -hmm. later in the season, we're going to be covering sort of the black market for sperm that has popped up. There are lots of Facebook communities now. We've interviewed a couple folks from these communities who have donated their sperm to multiple couples. um, And that's way more of a one-to-one interaction um, where you might meet someone in a hotel who just did their business in the bathroom and are giving you a cup. And they leave and you inseminate yourself there. Um, And there's also apps nowadays. There's an app called Just a Baby, and it's essentially Tinder for sperm egg donors and co-parenting situations. I've downloaded that app as part of my reporting. Yeah, and it's, it's really interesting you swipe left or right, just like you would on a dating app.
0: Despite all these new ways to connect with potential donors, the industry is still largely unregulated. When someone signs up to be a donor... A clinic will typically ask them to share some information. Their education level, whether there's a history of cancer in the family. But there's no requirement that these clinics actually verify that any of this information from the donor is true. From
2: my reporting, I found that most cryobanks seem to operate on the honor system, meaning they're trusting what the donor says is true. They're not calling up other doctor's offices, verifying those records, or conducting family interviews to make sure that information is true. And that's the same thing as it goes to Mm -hmm. educational history as well. I've talked to two people. One person, I know she donated her eggs six times. She's in her early 30s now. She says she has at least probably 20 living children out there. She donated out of Manhattan agency. The last time she donated was in 2019. I asked her, did they ever ask you to get records from other doctor's offices? She said, no. I said, no. Did they ever verify that you went to college or requesting college transcripts to prove that, you know, your educational background was actually what it said? She said no. And the same thing goes for a sperm donor or a person who was considering donating sperm Then in 2019 decided not to after he thought, oh, I might be able to be found. He's also in his early 30s. And he told me the same thing. And he was also donating through a Manhattan sperm bank. And, you know, I have Mm -hmm. to think that the sperm banks on the Upper East Side or the egg banks on the Upper East Side are probably the best in the country. And if they're not doing it, it leads me to think that probably a lot of other places are not doing it. The problem here is there is no national regulatory system here. There's no national oversight mm. body. So it's not like I can log on and and. Check out every cryobank or fertility clinic in the United States and say, oh, I can see that these ones do these things because it just doesn't exist. The industry for decades has been self-regulated and they would really like to keep it that way. Later in the season, we're going to be hearing from Sean Tipton, who is the chief public policy officer for the American Society of Reproductive Medicine. Um, And I put all of these questions to him and he says, we just think it would be too expensive and we don't want to do it.
0: So let me ask Amber to actually return to her story, because I wanted to ask her about tracking down her biological father. You know, to go back to this idea of there being so much secrecy in the industry and sort of a lack of record keeping and willingness to be transparent about those records. Amber, I understand that you and your half sister, Caitlin, decided you really wanted to find out who your biological father was, but it wasn't easy to figure out the answer. So tell us about that process.
1: Yeah. I mean, immediately following that conversation with my parents, I remember looking in the mirror and just being like, who am I? Like, who Hmm. is this other person? And the idea that this person was just kind of a question mark in my mind was just really upsetting. And beyond that, I immediately, you know, my thoughts immediately went to, you know, all of my medical information is wrong. What if there's something wrong with me and I don't know about it? There was just suddenly like a ton of uncertainty. So I tried to reach out to the clinic where I was conceived. It no longer exists. We have a running joke in the donor conceived community about the many fires, floods, and catastrophes that befall these clinics because they all seem to lose their records <laughs> uh, in suspicious ways. Yes. Um, and, you know, from there, Caitlin and I quickly realized we shared two matches on 23andMe, uh, two first cousin matches. So we were like, okay, that must be our biological father's nephews. So that was sort of our first avenue. We contacted them through 23andMe. They didn't respond. So we were kind of stuck. And then fortunately, one of them eventually responded to a 23andMe message, which led to them adding me on Facebook. And once we were connected on Facebook, it was through searching their mutual friends that I was able to find Kurt.
0: Now, who is Kurt? Kurt is my biological father. Wow. So it's it, I'm trying to keep track of all the technological aspects here. A 23andMe test led you to match up with a nephew, and then you found through Facebook this connection to Kurt. Which I then confirmed via
1: LinkedIn that Kurt, our <laughs> biological father, um, on his LinkedIn, and he was currently a doctor. One of the things we did know from the information Caitlin's mother had was that he was a med student at the time he was donating. And we saw that he went to med school in Albany where we were conceived and that he was currently a doctor. So that made us pretty confident that this was the right person that we were looking for. And mm-hmm. I'll never forget his Facebook profile picture. He He's an avid cyclist. And at the time it was a photo of him in his cycling gear, you know, standing on top of a mountain with his hands on his hips. And at the time my Facebook profile picture was almost identical. I had just had new headshots done for work and it was me standing with my hands on my hips in the exact same way. And I it oh, was just wow. a very creepy, creepy parallel. But also, you know, once we found him, it was
0: pretty unmistakable that we were related. Okay. So once you tracked him down, how did you broach the subject of trying to be in touch with him more?
1: Well, it was off to a rocky start. So I I was talking with this cousin, you know, I basically said like, look, we're just looking to make contact and, and get medical history And our cousin was like, well, I don't know. I got to talk to him. Like, I don't really want to share anything on his behalf. And I was like, that's totally fine. And then he came back and said, look, he's really not interested. Sorry.
0: But that wasn't the end of it. Amber and Caitlin decided to write a letter to Kurt. And after several weeks, they got a response. I woke up to a text from
1: Caitlin saying, oh, my God, Kurt, the email. And I was like, what? And she was like,
0: Kurt emailed us. I mean, did he seem surprised? How did he receive the news?
1: Uh, yeah, he was surprised. I think, you know, he also, similar to my parents, he had been told that he would be completely anonymous, that none of these offspring would ever find him. Yeah, But he's also, you know, he's a doctor. He's a smart guy. He had been following the advancements in <laughs> DNA technology. His nephew had reached out to him to tell him that we had contacted him, and he was, like, kind of freaked out by it, especially, I think, the the social media aspect of it. He was just like, uh, I, I don't know about this. I don't, I don't really want to deal with it. But he told us, you know, the more he thought about it, the more he was curious. Hmm. And I think he he mentions this in the podcast as well that you know it started to, you know, roll through his mind like, well, I have these
0: kids, like, you know, who are they? What are they up to? <laughs> and it turns out, I mean, you found out that Kurt had donated sperm hundreds of times, right?
1: Yes. Yeah,
0: and we didn't know that
1: until we spoke to him for the first time, but. He was like, yeah, you know, I did this hundreds of times over, you know, a couple of years. So you probably have 75 to 100 siblings out there.
0: Have you gone looking for other half-siblings?
1: I have 23 me. Caitlin has both 23andMe and Ancestry because she had started actively searching <laughs> before she found me. Mm-hmm. Um, so we kind of, you know, have people roll in that way. That's the only way we have to find each other. Um, wow. So we are now up to 10 half-siblings, And, you know, the rest of them likely don't know or maybe they know and they don't they don't care to find us. So there's quite a few more out there that I'm sure we'll (laughs) meet eventually.
0: So when you and Caitlin met him for the first time in person, what was that like?
1: It was completely surreal. I mean, Caitlin and I had FaceTimed and then the three of us had FaceTimed and that was crazy. But meeting in person it was just it was just completely surreal. It was like looking in a funhouse mirror. You know, we all got along really quickly and really easily. You know, not to sound cliché, but it felt like I'd known them my whole life. We all had a lot in common. And I just remember sitting at dinner and like looking at Kurt and looking at Caitlin and looking back at Kurt again and just like realizing how here are these people that I have all these things in common with that I look like. It felt like a missing piece had fallen into place. So it was really, really Mm. special. And I feel really grateful for that because there are so many people in the donor conceived community who never get that closure.
0: All of this was unimaginable and really close to impossible before the rise of mail order genetic tests. When 23andMe came on the scene, people started to learn a lot of family secrets, secrets that were largely encouraged by the fertility industry
2: in the 80s, 90s, early 2000s, there would be no conceivable way that DNA would be able to reveal this in the future. 23andMe literally seemed like something from science fiction. The idea that you could send away for something, spit into a tube, mail it back, and then go onto the computer and be able to trace your genetic matches, it was something out of science fiction. So, In terms of practicality, yes, there was a practicality, but I think there was also advice of doctors. Through my research, I found, and we're going to be talking about this later in the season, our ideas of masculinity, our ideas of what it means to be a man, our ideas of sexuality as it relates to whether or not you can impregnate your wife— have really driven the medical advice. So for a long time, it was thought that if you told a donor-conceived person we had to use a sperm donor, that it would be detrimental to the family, that the man would love the child less. And of course, we're talking in the context of heterosexual couples here. So that Mm -hmm. is one of the reasons why people were encouraged to keep it quiet, to keep it
0: hidden. Yeah, and actually, TJ, maybe you can speak to that a bit. a lot of people might describe some trauma associated with this experience, with learning it late in life. The idea of secrets being kept in the family and certainly learning something very new that's fundamental about who they are as a person. Can you tell us a little bit about what you've heard from people who are donor-conceived?
2: There is a big difference between learning early in life and learning accidentally in your 30s, by surprise through an at-home DNA kit. So, when it comes to heterosexual couples nowadays, psychologists really encourage parents to tell their children early and often so that essentially children don't even know a time where they didn't have this information. A couple that we're going to be speaking to later in the season who have three children that are donor conceived and they're all under 5 so You know, they have books for them. They talk about it openly. They say, you know, mom and dad needed some help to have a baby, and somebody gave a special seed to us, you know, in terms that children can understand. And it's not a secret. And also, those parents— You know, they have the benefit of of living in a country where anonymity is banned. They're in the United Kingdom, so their children will have the right to the donor's information and potential contact when they turn 18. And those parents are really excited for their children to be able to potentially one day connect with their half-siblings. So I think culturally a lot has changed. But to your question, yeah, if you find out accidentally by surprise later in life, it can be shocking, it can be traumatizing reality-shaking, you know, your identity can crumble kind of before you. So there has been a real shift in terms of encouraging parents to disclose. But of course, you know, some don't. So it's just really up to individual parents to do this at this point.
0: Mm. And Amber, what's your position? What do you advocate for? What should donor-conceived people have a right to?
1: I believe that the way donor conception is practiced in the United States today is highly unethical. Other countries have put guardrails in place to make the industry more ethical, whether that's eliminating anonymous donations, whether that's eliminating for-pay donations, whether that's putting restrictions on the number of children born from a specific donor, which helps eliminate issues like widespread genetic conditions, having lots of related children all in the same geographic area which is mm. the case with my biological siblings. We all grew up, for the most part, within a 50-mile radius of one another, mm-hmm. which obviously can create complications down the line if you don't know who your biological siblings are and you're growing up and you're dating in a specific you know, geographic pool. So these restrictions exist, and the United States has just chosen to do nothing about them. The industry has never... Concerned itself with these regulations, the industry is only self-regulated once, and that was around the HIV crisis. They switched from using fresh sperm donations to freezing the sperm and and STD testing the donors. Mm -hmm. That's the only time the industry self-regulated, and that was because there were women and children contracting HIV from donors and dying. So, you know, these are things that would be relatively easy to put in place, but it would impact the bottom line of a multi-billion dollar business. Uh, and where, where there's money to be made, it's very hard to put regulations in place.
0: Amber, everything that you're saying is is making me think about your relationship with your parents today. I mean, how is your relationship with your parents? Do you feel any sense of blame or I mean, especially when I went back and listened to your conversation? I had a lump in my throat when I heard your mom saying, I just wish you'd never asked. Does she feel that way still? You know, my
1: relationship with my parents has gone through a lot of transition since that conversation. I honestly feel like I am closer with both my parents now than I ever have been. At first, I was really angry that it was kept from me. One of the things I really got hung up on was there was a point where I had a medical issue and my doctor said, you know, you should really talk to your mom. Because I know you mentioned in your medical history that your parents had trouble conceiving. You should get more details on that as you're, you know, thinking about starting a family. And I asked my mom and I was like, hey, you know, I'm having this issue. Was that something you ever dealt with? Is there anything I need to know about my my conception that would that would affect my medical history? And she was like, no. Hmm. And so that was the thing that really got under my skin later was like, this lie was more important than like, My health. And that was something that I really, I really struggled with. But the more conversations I've had with my parents and the more time that has passed, they feel terrible. They feel really awful for the grief that I went through in learning this. And, you know, they're very sorry. They wish things had been done differently. And, you know, I accept that. I love my parents so much. I know that they really wanted to be parents, and that's why they did this. I think they made the choices that were presented to them, and they did what they thought was best. I was frustrated that I had to really dig for it, but we've come to, like, such a great place in our relationship because I think that they're really proud of me. They're proud of the work that I've done to share our story and keep this from happening to anyone else. That's really the only reason I'm, you know it's not super fun for me to trot out my trauma and talk about this, you know, all the time. Yeah. But if one person can hear this and make a decision to disclose to their children, you know, their true identity, or if one person hears this and feels seen or
0: heard as a donor conceived person, then like all of this is worth it to me. TJ and Amber, thank you both so much. Thanks for having me. Thank you. You can listen to Biohacked Family Secrets from 3 Uncanny 4 and Sony Music Entertainment on Apple Podcasts.